While at-home tests can now reveal how much of your DNA is Neanderthal, scientists still don't understand exactly what it means for modern humans to have this same genetic code in the first place. However, the latest research revealing what Neanderthal babies looked like and how they grew up is helping to change that. Meanwhile, the discovery of the oldest known sperm cells to date, no bigger than a poppy seed, has scientists rethinking reproduction altogether. With the latest research breakthroughs spanning centuries and species, scientists are reminded that even the tiniest creatures on Earth can teach us big lessons about our own history. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story explores what Neanderthal babies might have looked like, findings that change how we visualize Neanderthals, but also how we see our own modern babies as well. Our second story is about the oldest sperm sample ever found, entombed in amber during the Cretaceous period and hidden away in a collection for decades. Sperm's evolutionary grandfather has scientists rethinking reproduction among species altogether. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, in a new twist on a coming-of-age story, a study reveals what Neanderthal babies might have looked like. There's evidence that Neanderthals were not much different from the more modern counterpart, Homo sapiens, when it comes to their young. What'd they look like? Neanderthal babies? What'd they look like? Offspring of Neanderthal. Neanderthal child. Neanderthal children lived 250,000 years ago. Yeah, but what did they look like? With fossil records, scientists have been able to piece together what an adult Neanderthal looked like. They're stockier and more barrel-chested than modern humans. But due to a lack of fossil evidence, researchers knew little about younger Neanderthals and how they developed. Were they born stocky and barrel-chested, or did they develop those features through childhood and adolescence? A new study published October 2020 in the journal Science Advances sheds light on this genetic mystery. Using computing modeling, researchers virtually reconstructed the rib cages of four Neanderthal children. They then compared their development to that of a modern human child. Finding various similarities, they also discovered some key differences. Because these traits appeared consistent regardless of when Neanderthals died, the researchers suggest the traits were genetic and present at birth. Here to talk about how this first-time finding casts a brand new light on Neanderthal DNA as well as our own genetics is Inverse's Sarah Wells. Hey, Sarah. Hi. First, just to learn about this computing modeling that was used to figure this all out. I understand researchers took 3D scans of the fossil's anatomy and digitally reconstructed rib cages. How did they do this to compare the two species? Yeah, so because what they had initially were kind of just bone fragments, pieces of remains from these Neanderthal children. So instead of piecing them together physically, which would have been probably very dangerous. They did a 3D scan so they could kind of get the physical idea of them on the computer to manipulate instead. And then they also used statistical modeling, which is basically just a mathematical approach of very precise assumptions or kind of guesses about how things would come together. So using this 3D model, they then kind of applied their best guesses of how it might look. 
And then they compared those to actual anatomy of modern children. Gotcha. So when comparing the development of modern human children to that of these young Neanderthals, what kind of differences did they find between the two? Yeah, so there's two main differences that the researchers were bringing out in this study. And that was that the Neanderthal children, regardless of age, and the ages here were between a few months to, I think, almost five years old, they found that regardless of age, the Neanderthal children had shorter spines and deeper rib cages than um, their modern human counterparts. And because they found this across different age ranges, the researchers drew a conclusion that this is probably something that the Neanderthal children were born with, something that was genetic and not something that was maybe developed in adolescence. Does knowing this, does knowing Neanderthals had these distinct rib cages at birth do anything to change our overall perception of Neanderthals? I wouldn't say that it necessarily changes it, but it maybe kind of confirms some ideas or kind of fills in some gaps of our knowledge. Because researchers had, for a while, we've kind of known that adult Neanderthals have these, they call it barrel chests, uh, these kind of like wider, squatter chests. Um, But because the remains of children are small and delicate, there's been a scarcity within that fossil record. So researchers couldn't really previously confirm nor deny. So I think that this finding kind of falls into line with what they were maybe already expecting. And as far as our own evolution goes, does this offer any new significant food for thought? Yeah, I think what researchers will be looking at with this finding um, is kind of asking the question of why is there this difference and what is the function of it? So for the Neanderthals, researchers think that they kind of had these really big chests because they just needed more energy than other human species at that time. So they literally needed more capacity for oxygen, where clearly we kind of developed to not need that. So it can help them continue to investigate and look at the evolution of the adult or the child human thorax. Listeners can head to inverse.com for the full story. In the meantime, Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you. Recently, scientists discovered the oldest sperm sample ever found. Several times larger than human sperm, it's the latest proof that an alternative sperm strategy was an effective way of copulating millions of years ago. Up next, why the latest discovery has scientists rethinking reproduction among species altogether. The oldest known sperm in the world has been discovered. The world's oldest sperm preserved in a tiny piece of amber that solidified when behemoth like Spinosaurus dominated the earth. He's our sperm donor. Old sperm bank upstairs. Yep, here's your sperm. You know, uh, sperm. Sperm. Also sperm. Some of the smallest creatures on earth produce some of the largest sperm. Scientists were reminded of that fun fact after discovering the oldest known sperm cells to date. The cells, reported in a paper published September 2020 in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, were revealed in a 100-million-year-old chunk of amber, and it belongs to a muscle-like crustacean called an ostracod. Discovered in modern-day Myanmar, scientists say it belongs to a new species, Myanmar cypress hui. And it's no bigger than a poppy seed. Yet, the sperm? Gigantic. Much larger than you might expect for a creature that weighed less than one gram. 
In fact, it's several times larger than human sperm. An example of sperm gigantism, it's further proof that an alternative sperm strategy was an effective way of copulating millions of years ago. Here to talk about how the discovery has scientists rethinking the evolution of reproduction, not to mention giant sperm, is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma. Hey, Tanya. So first, can you talk about the actual sample that was discovered? What kind of creature is it and what do we know about it? Yes. So essentially, the creature that they found is here to undiscovered species of ostracod, which is sort of like a small crustacean that's about one millimeter big. And it sort of looks like, like a shrimp, kind of. And they found it entombed in sort of a small piece of amber that had been sitting in a collector's collection for a, a long time until he sort of took a closer look at it and realized that piece of amber was actually, you know, home to a creature that had been there for, I mean, millions of years. They think that this amber sample dates back to the Cretaceous period. So that could be as, you know, as far away from now as 100 million years. And to find something in this condition that's so old is obviously a big deal. But um, the surprising finding here was how big the sperm sample was in comparison. What does the team make of that standout? So size is actually one of the most striking things about this sperm sample. So basically, the sperm that they found is is an example of uh, sperm gigantism, which is sort of an alternative sperm strategy. So usually when we think of sperm in a mammal, we think of, you know, tiny, tiny little sperm cells that are sort of released on the magnitude of millions. What they found inside this ostracod was evidence of sort of one giant sperm. So to give you some perspective of how big that is, they would estimate that or the sperm that they found in that amber sample was somewhere like 200 micrometers long. And it kind of creates this like giant tangled ball that looks sort of like a rubber band ball if you ever get a chance to take a look at it. And that's actually kind of similar to some creatures we see today that have really large sperm compared to their body size. So there's actually a species of fruit fly that produces sperm that's 5.8 centimeters long if you were to uncoil it. And that's about 20 times its body length. Um, And so uh, ostracods are also known for having particularly long sperm as much as four and half times their body length. Um, And this is a really, really early example of sort of large sperm. How does this change things? Does this discovery change anything about our understanding of biology, of evolution? You know, how can we take this and, and learn more from it? Yeah. So sperm gigantism is generally thought to be not a great survival strategy. So what we, like I was saying earlier, if you are trying to, you know, make sure that your sperm fertilizes an egg, having lots and lots of small sperm, um, you have many chances for success. Whereas with sperm gigantism, you sort of have one very large sperm. You would think that that would not really be a great strategy. Also, those large sperm are sort of really not very cost effective to produce in a small creature's body. So the creature has to invest in additional organs to actually get the sperm into the female reproductive tract. They also have to have just larger reproductive organs, which creates a drain on energy. So the way the scientists put it to me was sort of historically, they thought that sperm gigantism was sort of this extravagant whim in the animal kingdom. And the fact that it dates back, you know, this far to a creature from the Cretaceous period sort of gives us some evidence that there maybe was some kind of survival benefit from it. And, you know, we weren't sure um, 
if maybe some animals switched to using giant sperm at some point in evolutionary history, um, and that sort of like doomed them to eventually go extinct. Um, but now we know that for at least this uh, species, it worked for 100 million years. So it's an example that giant sperm goes way back. Remember that, kids. Uh, there's actual visuals that you'll want to check out at inverse.com. Head there to see more and to read more of Emma's coverage. Thanks a lot, Emma. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Head to inverse.com to read more about the latest ancient discoveries. You can find links in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at inverse.com. Got something to say? Email us at theabstract at inverse.com with any questions, suggestions, story ideas, and anything else on your mind. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.